Luke 15. By this time, a lot of men and women of doubtful reputation were hanging around Jesus, listening intently. The Pharisees and religious scholars were not pleased, not at all pleased. They growled, he takes in sinners and eats meals with them, treating them like old friends. Before you sit down, would you please pray with me? Father, we look forward to that day. Uh, some of us walked in here today with some burdens we would be glad to drop right this minute and just join you in the clouds into however heaven is going to look uh, as it unfolds. But we ask you, while you leave us here, not only would you help us rise on that day, but would you help us rise as we celebrate it in this Lord's Supper and be your church, be your heart, be your hands, be your feet now. In Jesus' name we pray and everyone said, amen. Be seated. All right, since it's Super Bowl Sunday, I'm just curious, by a show of hands, how many hope the Falcons take it home today? All right, all right. How many of you, um, evil people, hope the Patriots take it home today? <clears throat> I really do, I uh, don't really care. But how many of you, like me, hope the queso and the chips hold out through the fourth quarter? All right, there we go. There we go. I know it sounds kind of corny, but I want you guys to know, um, you make this Super Sunday most Sundays for me. I mean that. Uh, it is a joy to be a part of your family. It's a privilege and an honor uh, to be able to stand here week to week and share my heart with you. And um, I truly want to do that today. It has been a blessing. Let's see if we get going here. There we go. Uh, to receive the comments uh, about the last series that we just wrapped up last week on Ephesians chapter 518 that I've called um, Filler Up. Um, God here commands us, and we're trying to be obedient to that command because he lovingly commanded us, be filled with this Holy Spirit. Don't just accept his presence. If you say yes to Jesus Christ and yes to the cross and yes to the resurrection, and you immerse yourself in his death, and he raises you up in a newness of life, you will receive the Spirit, but don't settle for that. Uh, Ephesians encouraged us to, to be filled with him. And so we've been trying, and we shared in our ministry team meeting this last Wednesday um, some of the truths of these lessons, and we kicked them around, and we talked about how they were impacting our lives. And I, I shared something with the team there that they asked me to share with you this morning. It's going to take us a little bit longer than normal, uh, but I think it will be of value to you. For many reasons, studying in depth and teaching on the Holy Spirit has been minimal in our heritage. And taking the time to examine how necessary he is to a person who thinks of himself as a Christian. The scripture goes even further than that. You can only be a Christian if you have his spirit within you. Thinking about that can be more than just convicting. It can be more than just enlightening. It can be threatening. When you see that what it means in the life of a person who is filled with this spirit. And you compare it to yours, it can be not just convicting or enlightening. I'll say it again. It can be threatening. Learning more about the Holy Spirit can sometimes leave you wondering if you even have the Spirit at all. I wondered the same thing 25 years ago. When God put Tony Marino in my life, a docent of the Holy Spirit. Let me do what Ty did a moment ago. A docent 
is an employee at an art museum whose job it is simply to point out the great works of art in that museum. He's not a painter. He's not responsible for the art, just simply pointing it out and maybe giving a little background about it. But he helps someone looking at the art in an art museum to make sense of what they're seeing. Well, Tony Moreno was God's docent in my life in regards to the Holy Spirit. There have been others in my life, Max Lucado, Charles Swindoll, Francis Chan, Jack Deere, Tony Campolo, Robert Hawkins, and many others who have been a docent from afar, but Tony was my local docent of the Holy Spirit. And I never would have guessed as much when I first met him because I needed my car repaired. <laughs> and there he was in, in his incredibly unassuming grease monkey overalls. He was a man small in stature, kind of shuffled as he walked. He was awkward with the English language because he had a very heavy Hispanic accent. Never have I met a man, however, whose appearance was a contrast to his brilliance. He was an accomplished artist who actually fed his family with the paintings that he painted. He worked for Honda motorcycles at one time as a racer, both in the enduro division cross country and on those tracks, you know, the kind that has the crotch rockets and you lay them over. Well, that was Tony. He did that for a living. He also flew planes. He also was a fishing guide. But his passion for life was that he loved sharing the Word of God with people who needed it. For seven years, all over South America, he and another brother shared the gospel and taught the word wherever the Spirit sent them. He told me for seven years, they did so relying only on God, no support from the states, just on what God provided for where they would sleep, where they would eat, what they would wear, and who they would talk to. After the Spirit directed him back to the states, he took that word to the Navajo Indians in Colorado. I got to meet him after he had married Valerie and moved to the mountains to work with the reservation Indians there, the Mescaleros. Together, they were an amazing team to help those who were aged make a transfer from this world to the next. They worked in hospice. And God put him in my life to help me become personally acquainted with the Holy Spirit. God put Tony Marino in my life to help me personally get acquainted with the Holy Spirit. He was my docent. I'd tell him of something that I had read in the Word, or I would tell him of some interaction I'd had in my life, or something that had happened amazing, and something that had happened sometimes that was crushing. And he would point out a masterpiece of what God was doing through the power of the Holy Spirit, and he would almost always, with tears in his eyes, connect that to a piece of his Word. Now, Tony had his faults. <laughs> he walked and stepped, however, with the Holy Spirit more than any person that I, I can say I've known. And with that walk came this insatiable hunger for the Word of God. And it would be no exaggeration to say he spent literally two to three, and I'm, I'm keeping this on the low end, maybe four or five hours a day in the Word. He radiated with joy, radiated with thanksgiving over the simplest of blessings. He, he could have been the star of that show we kicked off our entire service with. A shower? Yes! Shoes? Oh my goodness! And, and you, you're going to come visit me today, Jim? Great. I can't wait to see you. When you came to his house, it was as humble as a house could be in Ruido. So he would, he would make you feel like it was Downton Abbey. I'm telling you, it was a palace to him. And he made you feel like a palatial guest. He never spoke with pretense, but absolute humility and wonder as he pointed out 
hit the wrong button there. The things of the Holy Spirit that he saw in my life and that he saw in his life. And here's a kicker I want you to hear. He always did it as a novice. He spoke like a novice, a beginner, someone at elementary level, never with pretension. And through his patient assistance, he helped me get comfortable with this one that we know in Scripture is the comforter. And I will be eternally, literally, eternally grateful to him. Now, my hope is in some way that we will raise up leaders who will do the same for us. Seriously. I hope I can be a part of that leadership that helps become a docent in your life to point to the things of the Holy Spirit working among us and say, that's, that's what he does. That's how he works. Wondrous things and crushing things, but he's working through it all. Because God works together for good, all things for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Amen? Amen. The Spirit does that constantly. And if you feel like a novice, if you feel childlike sometimes, and I just don't get this, that's normal with all the things of God. All the things of God. We tremble at, 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 at everything about him because we're just beginners in this place. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, at best we see foggy, like a, a bathroom mirror is all fogged up. That's, a, that's as good as it gets as we see with our eyes here, even spirit-filled eyes. But what great truths the Spirit has reminded us of these last couple of weeks. Not only is the Spirit of truth someone who's going to help us hear truth, and we're glad for that, but he's also someone who's going to help us speak truth. And I want to underscore that again. We're not evangelistic for a lot of reasons. But it truly is my belief that the main reason, the primary reason is, is we just don't have as intimate a relationship with the Spirit as we should. And if we had a constant filling of this Spirit in our lives, it would spill over, all right, into other people's lives. And Jesus shows us himself in Luke chapter 15. If you've got your, your Bibles with you, turn over there. We're going to be spending the rest of the morning there, all right? Here's where sermon number two starts. Luke chapter 15. Let me set the scene for us. Jesus continually stuns those who consider themselves deeply religious because he spent so much time with those who considered themselves deeply sinful. Joel read that a few moments ago from the message. The group known as the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, absolutely were perplexed that the people that were so unlike Jesus actually liked him. And he liked them back. He liked them so much so that he develops a reputation, as we read, for wanting to, to be with them a lot. For wanting to, to have dinners with them. Celebrate their, their parties with them. He welcomed them and loved them. And Jesus overhears somebody asking, kind of in a, in a muttering way, why is he doing that? I don't know why this is going on like this today. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law murmured, this man welcomes sinners, and he eats with them. Now, they may have muttered that, but you know what? I think that's a fair question. I really do. Why in the world would an obviously religious man spend so much time with irreligious people? And Jesus, this one who we know... <laughs> 
was full of the Holy Spirit, is about to respond to that question in a way that both religious and irreligious people gathered around him could clearly understand. And the problem with these two groups, both the religious haves and the religious have-nots, is that they used labels of people in such a way that didn't reflect the way that God uses labels of people. Both the religious and the irreligious saw people as good or bad, acceptable or unacceptable, men or women, adults, children, rich and poor, a lot of other designations. And those are all true designations, and we could use them here in this room as ways that we designate people, but we dare not define them that way. And that's what the problem was. Those designations had crept up the ladder, and, and irreligious and religious people were using labels God really wasn't using. And one afternoon, Jesus takes an opportunity with both groups present to teach them both that God sees people with different lenses and with different labels than they do. And he tells them a couple of parables. Two about lost things and one about a lost boy. And i got to tell you, for someone who does this often, he's just a master at teaching. No matter what the label, religious or irreligious, no matter how they saw themselves in this group that's gathered around him, he gets everybody's attention. He gets them all on the same page when he tells the first two stories. And the first one's kind of hit or miss with us because we aren't sheep people. At least not like the Jews were sheep people. Now, I got to hang out with some folks at the 4-H barn the other day. We got a couple of sheep people here, all right? And they did great at the show. But that's over for, for most of them. And, and they're going to go on and be other kinds of people. But for a while, they've been sheep people. But these folks lived it constantly. It was their lives. And I can guarantee you there were some guys there in that audience, probably predominantly guys, who when Jesus starts talking about this Sheep story, he has their full attention. Here's what he says. Suppose one of you had a hundred sheep and loses one of them, which, if you know sheep, happens pretty regular. Jesus said standard procedure is you leave the 99 and you go find the one that's lost. And again, a little bit of a disconnect for us because we're thinking, wait a minute, 99, one. You're going to leave the 99 safe sheep and go find the one. That's a 1% loss. Let's hang with the 99%, right? Not when it's your livelihood. 1% is a lot. It's a lot. And the truth is, on some level, we all understand it, though. When we lose something of value, almost all of us focus on what's lost to the neglect of something that is unlost. You know that, right? When we were first coming to the church here at KCC, we were living in Fredericksburg, but one day I got a call in the office, and Gail said, I've lost a diamond out of my wedding ring. Now, husbands, how you respond to statements like that is critical. And you know what I could have said to her? But you've got your cell phone, and you've got the washer, and you've got the PT cruiser. And you know what my wife would have said? Oh, silly me. And I have a 38 from my father. And I know how to use it. When we lose something of value, we will focus on what is lost to the neglect of something that's unlost, won't we? So Jesus says he leaves the 99 sheep and he searches until he finds it. And everyone in the audience agrees. They may have never agreed on anything at all as a group, but those irreligious and religious said, yeah, that's what you do. You go find that sheep. 
And when he finds it, Jesus goes on. He joyfully puts it on his shoulders and he goes home. And then he calls his friends and neighbors together and he says, Rejoice with me, I have I found my lost sheep. And that made some of the guys snicker there who were really sheep guys. Because, I mean, that's a little hyperbole. It's a little exaggeration. You don't really just throw a party because you found one sheep. You put him on the shoulder. You're glad about it. Don't get me wrong. But it's a little bit of an exaggeration. But when you find something that's been lost, it's valuable. It is time to celebrate. And so Jesus goes on and he says this, I tell you the truth in the same way, in the same way, there's going to be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need repentance. Now, Jesus just upset two groups there, <laughs> both the religious and the irreligious, all right? And they know who they are. And they both are thinking, is he talking about us? And the ones who are most uncomfortable are the righteous, all right? Because they're thinking, wait a minute, you're telling me that God is more interested in him who I wouldn't dare have in my house than me who visits his house regularly and does everything I can to honor my house? And Jesus says, yeah. He continues with story number two before there's too much of a fuss about it because he wants them to hear something about their labels the way they see people, the way they see themselves. He tells story number two. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and she loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And all the women in the audience go, you bet she does. Why? What's up with the ten coin things? Well, one version of this goes that this was an ancient Jewish kind of a wedding preparation, that these ten coins were a woman's dowry, and she wore them in a headband sewn into her burqa. Now, you couldn't see her face, but you could see those ten coins, all right? And, and it was kind of one of those things that was, I'm just going to say it, was kind of like bait. You get me, uh, you get these. You with me? You get me, you get these ten coins. So to lose one of those, you don't leave the house until you have found that coin that you've lost. There's some other applications possibly with those ten coins, but the root of the story is this. There were ten valuable things in these women's lives, and to lose one of them would so impact them that they wouldn't dare, dare go on with life until they found what was lost. And the women in that story connected greatly with that. And you know what? Some of the dads who had put those coins, paid for those coins and put them in there, they connected too. Yeah, you don't leave the house until you found that. Again, this is hyperbole, but here's what Jesus says. And when she finds it, she calls her friends and her neighbors, and together she says, Rejoice with me! I have found my lost coin. A little bit of exaggeration there. But you know what? Everybody in that audience, just like you, connects with a place inside all of us when something that is lost that has great value to us is found. When Gail found her wedding ring, Actually, she found the diamond in her wedding ring. It was even much more smaller than that. It moves her to tears. And she was so happy. I wasn't present when that happened, but she said, let me tell you what, the big God dance was done in the sportsman household. Some of you ladies right now have no emotional attachment to your purse. 
you don't, unless maybe you lost it. And you haven't heard a word I've said or sung a song that we've said. You're thinking about where in the world that purse might be. Nobody in this room who has a purse. I'm sorry if I've left out some of you guys in your man bags, all right? All right. This is 2017. But when that purse is gone, all of a sudden now, great emotions are attached to that purse. And you, you can't think straight until somebody finds that purse. Why? Because there's a specific emotion attached to something not because you have it, but because it was lost and you found it. Here's a truth that I think we all can relate to. When we lose something of great value, we will go to great lengths to find it. Regardless of whether the sheep story connects with you, regardless of whether the, the coin story connects with you, regardless of whether anything that I've said as far as parabolic connects with you, when you lose something of value, when you find it, that hits us deep. I lost one of my favorite pocket knives I have ever had. It's called an oh-so-sweet. I looked for it for two weeks, and I never told Gail about it because I didn't want to hear, well, you're just man-looking. Here, let me find it. Well, she found it. And I'm telling you the truth. As God is my witness, she finds it the day that I'm going to the office, and I'm going to buy another one on Amazon. And she says, Jimmy, I, I found something for you. And I said, you didn't find my knife. And she said, how did you know? I said, because I lost it, and I, and I was embarrassed to tell you about it. And she brought it to me. And right then, she got a 10-second kiss for marital bliss, baby. <laughs> because when we lost something of value, when we find that it, it's worth celebrating. Always. Is there a punchline to this story, Jimmy? Is there a, a point to any of this? Yeah, it's in the next story that Jesus tells. All of this has been leading up to this story. And you know it well. His dad had two sons. And the younger son decided that his dad wasn't dying fast enough for his life plans. And so the son has the audacity to go to the father who is a man of considerable means. And the younger son essentially says, Dad, when you die, I'm going to get a significant piece of your estate. We know that. <laughs> but you're looking really good. And I mean that. You're looking really good. You could live forever. And you know what? I'm just wondering, could I have my part of the estate like now? Because you're going to live to be so old, I'm never going to get a piece of this inheritance pie. Could I have mine now? If you love me, I think you'd let me have my share. And if any of you are fathers like I am, that one cuts me to the quick. To have one of my kids come to me and say, Dad, I appreciate you helping me with the college. Appreciate you helping me with a car. But you know what? I need the real bank now, if you don't mind. Would you mind taking out a second on the house? Do you mind cashing in a little bit of the 401k for me? Because I'd like to take my money now. Wow. Forget the money. What would that tell you about your son or your daughter? I think it would say the same thing to you that it said to the people right there in Jesus' audience. That this son was gone in his heart long before he left in his body. That he was gone relationally long before he was gone spatially. I'm telling you, the relationship was already broken. All the young son was doing at this point was simply asking to sever it. Because this conversation, no doubt, is the pinnacle of a stream of conversations that went on in this home for months. You know this. You can see this. 
This father knew the son was distant. He's the one who never takes his earbuds out. He's the son who never participates in the family dinner banner. This son is gone. But his body is still hanging around. Dad, your death is standing in the way of me and my money. I hope you'll live long and prosper, all right. But can I go ahead and have what's already mine, what's rightfully mine? And here's the amazing thing about this story. The father wanted to reconnect with the son so much that he chooses the shortest route back. The father wants to reconnect with his son so much that he will not settle for a body that's present. He wants a relationship that's real. And so he chooses the shortest route back. He funds his departure. And what the audience heard when Jesus said that, don't miss this, that ain't normal. Nobody in their right mind does that. That's crazy. And it was absolutely crazy. Who in the world loves a rebel more than he loves his own reputation? Can you imagine what this was going to make this father look like to the rest of the community? A fool. That's what both the irreligious and the religious would have said. That man's a fool. And those who knew their Bible well would say, and that's why God put a little verse back there in Leviticus that says, if you have a rebellious, insolent son, let me tell you what you do with that boy. You take him into the city square, and you pick up some rocks, and you stone him. You don't bankroll him. And dad says, all right. Let's pretend that I'm dead. I will liquidate the estate, and I'll give you your half now. And it was silent in the crowd. Ah, but there's a dad who is willing to lose his son for the moment to hopefully get him back for a lifetime. And you know what? That takes incredible wisdom, and it takes incredible courage. And I believe it takes the power of God to do that. And you know the rest of the story. The son gets his visa cards, gives a polite hug and kiss to mom and dad. I'll see you soon. And buddy, he's out of there. He's out of there to to buy for himself all the things he has believed he has non-lived without. And you know how it goes. You know the story. And so does the audience. Because they had seen it lived out before. The cash holds out as long as times are good. And life is good as long as it does. But as soon as the money is gone, so were all those great friends and so was all that great life. He found out quick what Zach Brown and his band sings. <laughs> the senoritas don't quero when there's no more dinero. And they don't. But for a moment, buddy, he had it all. Cheerleaders, condo, convertible, credit cards, but as time goes by, and listen to me, it always goes by. Eventually, the life that was nothing but smooth sailing all of a sudden becomes storm after storm after storm until that boat sinks. Lower than it ever could have imagined. Some of you know this story because it's your story. It's a story that's playing out with your problem son or your problem daughter or your problem niece or your problem brother or your problem grandchild. And you know this story well enough, you hope it ends like this story does. 
Eventually, the son is overwhelmed by the realization that he is disconnected from everything that really matters in his life. Eventually, but not initially, eventually the son's so overwhelmed by the realization that he's lost that he decides to do something humbling about it. Now, guys, we're talking about flushing down the toilet some serious bank. We're talking about some money that may have taken generations to accumulate, and this kid blows it all in a short matter of time. And he is missing home, but you know what? He is wondering, is home missing him? And he's thinking, how could they be? How could they miss the arrogance? How could they miss the disrespect? How could they miss the selfishness? How could they miss the rudeness? I'm responsible for that. There's no way they take me back as a son. But you know what? I'd settle for just being taken back as one of my dad's slaves. One of the hired hands. He treats them better than I'm being treated here. And Jesus in his audience has people listening to him, hopefully like you're listening to me, some who would say, you know, that's a version of my life. It's not just a version of, of somebody close to me. It's me. And I think I'm far from God. You know what? I'd like to know if I could be close to him again. Let me tell you the truth. I'm missing home, but I don't know if home's missing me. And I, I, I want to be good, but not goody-goody. Like, like some of the ones that I've seen that, that are godly. And I've seen all their hypocrisy. I don't want to be. Is there another version of good? Is there another relationship with God? Nothing like that where I could be good, but not be so hypocritical. And if you surveyed the religious people in the audience... And the scribes and the Pharisees, you know what they would say? No. Because God doesn't miss them. He's disgusted by them. And if you were to ask the sinners, they would say, no. He's not interested in us. How could he be? He is disgusted with us. And so the story goes on. And the son takes a chance and he gets up. And he goes to his father anyway. And what happens next in the parable blows the minds of every single person who has any label at all, both then and now. And it blows their mind because they don't see people the way Jesus sees people. They don't see the broken. They don't see the disconnected. They don't see the rebellious like we see them. Maybe the next statement is why God brought you here this morning, all of you, because this one really matters. But while he was a long way off, his father saw him, and he was filled with, how do you feel that? How you feel that is huge. It's huge. Because it's how we, we believe God sees those who are a long way off. Those who are disconnected, do you feel it with disgust? Do you feel it with embarrassment? Do you feel it with shame? Do you feel it with rage? That would be ordinary. That'd be normal. That'd be expected. Because without the grace of God in your life and without the Spirit of God filling your life, friend, that's all you can see. Come on. Naturally, that truly is all we can see in the natural. But here's what the scripture says. While he was a long way off, the father saw him and he was filled with compassion. 
And when Jesus said that word, the whole audience gasped. Compassion? That's nuts. That is just not ordinary. Nobody would expect that. That's just abnormal. <laughs> That's my God. It's nothing like you would expect. Not from what you know. He's nothing ordinary. He's extraordinary. No father on earth could love any son like that after what he had put him through. No father on earth could do that. But if we could just see the world the way that Jesus sees the world, things change. He ran, the Scripture says. That was his response. He ran to the son, threw his arms around him, and he kissed him. And I know somebody wants to say, wait a minute. Pause. Where was that kind of emo when the son was leaving? I mean, when he had his back and he was walking out, why not go tackle him then and say, stay, 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 please, please, stay? Where's that level of emo then? And some of you in this room go, I can tell you why you didn't, because it wouldn't work. Not with somebody who's disconnected in here. They may be present in their body, but when they disconnect here, it's not long before they're there. And to stand in the way of that is just to slow down the process of them coming back. And that's so hard for us to hear, but it's true. It's true. But do we want them back? That's the question this church has to answer right now at this part of our journey. Do we want them back? And you know what? It's why I came here. Because you said, yes, we do. Yes, we do. And we welcome arms of hope to come. And we welcome those who said, you know what? I've been a long way from home. Is there somebody who can help me find my way back? And we said, we'd like to be a part of, of an incredible ministry who's trying to do that. But you know what my concern is, church? Is that we think that that's all the loss that matters for this church. And you know what? I don't know how, what the percentages of those of us who are, are, are part of that rescue mission. But I have to believe there's a large part of us who have the same eyes as, as those religious people in this story. And have the same labels as those religious people in the story. And there's just a lot of people out there we would just soon not mess with. Because the truth is God's disgusted with them. And I hear some of that pop up in some of our discussions about these refugees. Who, you know what, they, they may have got it wrong in their choice of faith. And life is rolling over them in, 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 a, in the same level of a holocaust. Of a holocaust. And back then we wondered, why did we do more? And we're saying the same junk now that was said then. That's their problem. And you know what, they made that bed, they deserve to be in it. And we're not just saying that about refugees. I'm talking about all the refugees who are without the Father now, who are far from home now. And I'm included in that. But here was a boy who desired to, to reconnect. And he had no idea what he was going to find when he tried to reconnect. And you know what? I know this. There are some some lost, disconnected people right now who are right now waking up to a life that is anything but a life, and they're wondering, where can they connect? Is there any place that I can go that's not that goody, goody, good, you know, the hypo full of hypocrisy 
and, and they say one thing when they're in the building here and there's something totally else different? Is there some place where I can go that I can know the Father? And I came here because I saw a group of people who were doing their best to try. I just want to remind us, don't stop there. Don't stop with arms of hope. You've got lost all around you. All around you. And what they're needing is, is for us to do a little running of our own when we see them coming back. The son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. <laughs> he had a long time to work on that speech as he made his way back home. And the father would have none of it. Because this is his boy. That was, that was then and I knew. And you know, there was probably always someone coming to find dad and saying, Do you... Have you heard what's going on? Yeah, I've heard. Do you have any idea where? Yeah, I know. It wasn't like he was lost as in GPS lost. All right. He was lost as in SIN lost. And that's the worst kind. But the father said to the servant, <laughs> Quick, you go bring me the best robe and put it on him. You get me the best ring, put it on him, and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he's found. And so they began to celebrate. Because that's what you do when something of value is lost and all of a sudden it gets returned to you. Is you celebrate. That's why I love, I love it when our church sees someone come up out of that water I love it that our church claps, but it bothers me sometimes that it was kind of one of these golf claps. It does. And I know some of you are introverts and you're not really clapping people, but get over it. Someone who was lost has come home. We, can't, we don't have calves here to slaughter and, and robes and rings, but we can do this. Yes! We can do that. And I know that's this extrovert preacher of yours talking like that, but you know what I mean. Get with it, all right? Someone who was lost is coming home. Because that's how the father feels. Dad would have none of that. Oh, church, Jesus sees people in a way that we just don't see them. There's lots of labels by which we describe each other. But if we are the Savior's church, I believe it's part of our mission to prioritize our labels the way that the Savior prioritizes them. The son of mine was dead. There's a label. And now he's alive. He was lost. And now he's found. You walked in here with a lot of labels for people that you know. Where do they fit in this? Do you care? Do you care? Are your eyes looking down the road for anybody who's lost and who's dead? Are they? And I, I, I remember Barbara Brown Taylor saying, be careful when you preach, Jim. Because we walked in here with a lot of things that we're not good at and we're, not, we're falling short in. Be careful how you deliver that. So I'm trying, all right? I'm trying to be you sitting there and me standing up here going, I just need to be reminded of how terrible a thing is to be lost again. Because I feel like it's slipping in our minds. And we have all these labels that we, we spew and we, we talk about in our conversations. And rarely does it come up, but they're lost. What do we do? 
And I just believe it's got to change. Jesus answers the question, why would a religious leader spend so much time with irreligious people? It's because God loves them. And for those who are disconnected, he wants to connect anybody who's far from home. Now, let me say this and we'll be done. Because I know we're already over time and I apologize for that. The default for most churches is this, we pay attention to the 99 to the paying customers, to those who are already connected. That's what we do. That's where we put most of our time for budgets. That's where we put most of our time for staffing. That's where we put most of our money towards. It's to take care of us, the connected 99. That's not God's priority. And I got to tell you, it's not mine. It's not mine. I don't care if we pay this building off. I don't care if we get a worship leader. If we get those things, fine. If that happens, fine. I'm worried about those who don't know him and who are lost. I mean, they are lost. And they're in your high school, and they're in your employment circle, and they're in your soccer teams. And if they stay lost, it is awful, the Scripture says. It is hell, the Scripture says. And I just think every now and then our church needs to be reminded, that's why... We've got to be filled with His Spirit. Because if I'm not, I'm not going to see the world that way. I won't. I'm going to see it naturally, not supernaturally. And we'll just be another organization who does some nice things in the world, but who doesn't save lost people. And so I'm asking you, would you be filled with His Spirit? Because that's the only way that we get out there and make a difference. And it's the only way that the next series of lessons we're going to be talking about even matters. We can talk about where it's easiest to possibly connect with some of those people in a way that we probably haven't been doing in a while. But we've got to know how and who first. And the Holy Spirit's the who. You know, there's a brother in this story that I haven't talked about at all, and I don't really have time to talk about much. He's a brother who doesn't care that the boy's back. He's a brother that really doesn't care how his father feels either. As a matter of fact, he's a little upset with dad because you know what? He's been pretty faithful, he thinks. And he really could have, if, if you don't mind me saying this, a little bit more in his life than he does. He's kind of miffed with dad. He's not gotten near as much as he had hoped would be out of obedience and of loyalty And he cares nothing about the celebration. So much so that he says, nah, not coming in. Not a part of it. And you know what? That breaks the heart of my father even more. If you're missing home this morning, can I say as clearly as I possibly can? Home's missing you. God's missing you. And he will take you just as you are. And he will put a robe around your shoulders. It may feel like a preacher's arms, but it'll be a robe, all right? And we'll put a ring on your finger. And he will welcome you back as a son and as a daughter. But that has to be something that you want. Because the Father's never moved. He's never stopped loving you. 
And church, I don't want to be that older brother who really doesn't care how the father feels, who is kind of miffed, you know, that I could have a little bit more in my life than I do. And you know what? To be honest, some of those lost people just get on my nerves. It gets a little bit too loud in here for me sometimes. God help us have his eyes to see. And that only happens when we're filled with his spirit. Lord, we love you. Thank you for um, this church family that I can share my heart with, share your word with. And I pray with all my heart that uh, today this will be um, a moment when all of us look inside and to examine our labels. And if you brought someone here today who wants to come home and who would like um, to know you still care, even though that they're worried that you're disgusted more than you care, would you help them as we sing this song about how much we need you? Would you let them not just sing it but come and say, but I need him back? And if there's a brother or sister here who's got a son that's lost, no matter how old or young they are, a grandson that's lost, a nephew that's lost, will you help them get to one of our prayer partners, one of our elders, and have them pray over this? Because they need your, your courage. They need your wisdom. They need to know what they need to do next. We love you, God. Thanks for loving us. We want to celebrate that now in Jesus' name. And everyone said, let's stand, let's sing, church.